0: Welcome to the Ninja Tune podcast where this week we're joined by The Bug and Earth following the release of their album Concrete Desert which is out on Ninja Tune. They talk about the music they were listening to growing up, the first instruments they played, how they got together and the process of recording their new album. After that we take a listen to some of the new music coming out on the Ninja Tune family of labels including tracks from James Heather, Jordan and Rake, Lapalux, M A new signing, Bicep. This is the Ninja Tune podcast, and today we're joined by Kevin Martin and uh, Dylan Carson, better known as The Bug and Earth, who have just released their album together, Concrete Desert. Good to meet you both, and uh, you're both visiting the the UK at the moment. Kevin, you're now living in Berlin, Uh, and Dylan, you're over from Seattle. First, Kevin, um, how are you finding
1: the scene, or how long have you been in Berlin now? I've been there for nearly four years now, I guess. And how how do you find the scene there compared to here? I think I'm as much an outsider there as I was here, really. It's a similar life. I'm either in my studio as a nocturnal animal or as a newly crowned dad. Uh, I I have a family life in the daytime and a a musical life in the evening, and I don't socialise much. My my socialisation is mostly touring. Uh, Other than that, I'm just... uh, cabin fever victim for, for mm. studio fever um, and yeah basically Berlin as a city I think it's great I, I was worried that I would miss London and miss the inspiration London had on me because all the music I'd made and had released was born from London so be- de- definitely when I, I moved over there there was an apprehension that what if you lose this creative spark but I think I realized that's complete and utter bullshit that the spark is between my ears you know, and um, Berlin basically is cheaper, more sociable, <laughs> less stressful, and I can ride a bike without worrying about being killed. So uh, it's cool.
0: And is there anything you you do miss from London?
1: Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, I loved and hated London both. I think it's an incredibly special city. I just couldn't afford the city. You know, it tortured me on a regular basis. I think if you've got money in London, London is one of the best cities in the world, you know. Um, I think there's a multicultural meltdown in London that's really healthy. Of course, it's still rife with racism and political bullshit, but actually, um, Berlin, by contrast, is still predominantly white, apart from the Turkish community, which is a, a much needed lifeline to the city. Um, but there's a musical buzz in london i mean i lived in london through jungle through dubstep and had my sound system addiction uh, started and nurtured in london you know um it was within months of having moved here that i saw Iration steppers and the disciples do a sound clash and i'd never experienced anything like it in my life and, and they're they're on and thereby I I became an addict for going to Shaka dances or Abishanti nights and I became a complete dub addict you know and and I miss that it's there in Berlin but it's sort of ghettoised in Berlin like there's one major reggae venue in Berlin where nearly every reggae or hip-hop artist goes and it feels really ghettoised and a bit wrong to me you know I don't like anything that I feel is is formulaic or, or compromised you know and and I've I've started a club up in Berlin with my sound system which I had in storage in London for years but I never had a crew around me in London or a venue that was reliable in London to be able to use it but finally I've got that up and running and that's really exciting you know and uh, like a dream come true you know for me I kept paying storage madly (laughs) month after month in the hope that one day I would get it together you know and and it took a move to Berlin for it to happen, which is just insane. I mean, I, I must have paid 10 times more in storage than, than the rig was worth, at least, you know. Um, but to finally get, get it up and running and to have the two nights we've had thus far go off really well is, is, is a beautiful thing, you know. So, yeah, I like Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Dylan, obviously you're um, in Seattle
0: and do you come over a lot to the UK? What's your relationship yeah. like being with the yeah. London?
2: I mean, I spend as much time as possible here, uh, since my wife lives here, and uh, I'm hoping to move here at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, I, sp- I mean, I about half half my times in Seattle, and half my times here. Um, well, actually, half <laughs> most of my times on tour. <laughs> my downtime yeah, is just split fairly, I guess, equally. Um, between Seattle and London although I try to make it more time in London um, but, uh, but yeah
0: and how's the scene in Seattle obviously a, a huge sort of music presence over the years is it is that still strong Is it? do, do you get to check it out yeah
2: see it's funny because I'm I guess a lot like <laughs> Kevin when I'm in Seattle I'm like uh, I don't really go out I don't really do much uh since it's usually, like, at the end of a tour or at the start of a tour. I'm mostly uh, mostly a homebody. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I really don't... I'm not that familiar with what's really happening in Seattle that much anymore. Um, uh, I mean, it doesn't... It's not... I mean, it's definitely not, like... It's very different from the 90s, you know? There's no... Like, overarching grunge juggernaut, or you know, anything like that. It's definitely more of a, I guess, more of a fragmented scene, maybe, I guess. But, um, but yeah, I don't, I'm pretty sedentary when I'm home, don't go out much. And did you grow up in Seattle? Was that, uh, um, <clears throat> I was born there. Um, and then moved around a lot when I was a kid and then came back for the last couple years of high school. Um, So I've lived there um, pretty much since then although I did live in L.A. for four years um, and I lived in Olympia for a couple years. Uh, But yeah, since I've been back in Seattle I came back from L.A. in 2000 Uh, So yeah, I've been there since 2000 now, so...
0: And what were you listening to when you were growing up? What were, I mean, what were your family music-wise playing? Uh, What what
2: seeped into your mind of those uh, early days? um, I guess probably... The first music I guess I was really aware of would would have been my parents' music, which was, you know, obviously from my name, Bob Dylan, um, the band... uh, um, we were given, uh, an Almond Brothers record for Easter one year, um, so I guess, you know, I guess classic rock kind of stuff, um. And what did you turn to as you got older? What what's, uh... Um, when I could buy my own, uh, records, the very first album I bought was, uh, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap by ACDC, and, uh. That was the band that made me want to play rock and roll and <laughs> uh, after after I heard them that's all I wanted to do really was music.
3: She said to never been.
0: what it what it was that struck that chord
2: with you? I don't know. I guess. Uh, the
1: shorts.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess just you know. I mean, it was like. I guess adolescent rebellion, uh, and uh, I don't know, like. I mean, the best to me, the best rock music still has that sense of infinite possibilities that that very few musics capture. Um, and uh, yeah, and I mean, I guess you know, I was living in Texas then, and I was a Texas Stoner kid, and my parents didn't like it, that, which helped, and <laughs> so yeah. And we we'll about you, Kevin, where uh, we were your early days
0: growing up? And what were, you, what were your family? What, what was seeping into your mind of that?
1: Yeah, the reason Dylan's laughing, he, he knows this story, but and definitely love my mum, but she tortured me really, you know, for many years with speakers in three of the rooms in our house blasting out deep purple, <laughs> rainbow UFO. <laughs>
2: All the stuff I had. Yeah. Uh, Cream,
1: Uh, I think Led Zeppelin too, she was quite into. Just lots of guitar music, which became my enemy, actually. And at that time, I think I was about eight years old when a friend played me the Sex Pistols album. And just being so stunned that as a young, very young kid, like, just the swearing alone was attractive. (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, and just wondering what all this was about, and yet my f- my family wasn't a happy place. You know, it was warfare between my parents and my father and I uh, continually. And um, the music that spoke to me was punk music. Yeah. Initially, you know, I think the first record I bought was a Discharge record, um, which. I still love, actually. I still think Discharge sound pretty incredible. It was the first DPs, I think, called Fight Back or Realities of War. <laughs>
4: Fights the to back! Fights just to If shit, too long! Like. Run the down, no the back! Try to see them stand up. Try to
1: ride. And I hear things like Sonic Youth in that now, you know. I don't know if they were into it, but somehow that. And I found out from Justin in Techno Animal uh, that they were actually quite ahead of their game in terms of how they multi track guitars to a, a ridiculous degree. But at the time, it was just a great big fuck you to the world, you know, and it was, I didn't have headphones then. So I just, my. when my parents were screaming at each other, I would lie on the floor and pull my speakers down on either side of my ear and play Crass or, or uh, 23 Skidoo or Cabaret Voltaire or Throbbing Gristle or something like that. I was very fortunate that there was a record store in, in my t- local town, Weymouth, where the guys that ran the shop became like surrogate family to me and they welcomed me with open arms and it was a meeting place for freaks in the town you know it was a very conservative town on the south coast of England Um, and they introduced me to a lot of music which I still hold dear Uh, stuff like uh, Joy Division, Captain Beefheart, Birthday Party. At the time through my school friends getting into Pill, The Stranglers um, A lot of post-punk music seeped in very fast. And also the feeling that you could do this too. Why couldn't you do this? If it's your parents were dissing this music, saying it's shit because anyone could do it. Well, if anyone can do it, then surely I can do it. You know, and if it's, if these people are getting all this emotion out of their systems, I want to get it out of my system because I've got a lot of emotion to get out, you know? And, um... at what point did you start doing it yourself? And the instigation for actually playing an instrument was probably when I was about This sounds like a crock of shit, but it's true. But my grandfather used to be a saxophone player in a jazz band, but he had his hand amputated in an industrial accident in the factory he worked. And I remember when I was about four, it's probably the only time I met him, I think, actually, (laughs) he called me and some of my cousins into his room and said, whoever could get a note out of the saxophone could have the saxophone. And I was the only one that got the note out. And I can remember crying non-stop for the rest of the day when I realized he was absolutely lying and I didn't get the saxophone. (laughs) And actually, ironically, the first instrument I learned was a saxophone. Uh, When I was about 14, uh, I I picked up a sax. Weirdly enough, it was through bands like Theatre of Hate and the Psychedelic Furs. And I still don't know why I picked the sax. I mean, it turned out to become an obsession and I ended up loving a lot of jazz music and becoming a big fan of Pharaoh Sanders, Albert Ayler, Peter Brotzman, John Coltrane. instrument and not having a lot of money it just was a way of making some atonal sound because I very quickly realized I didn't want it to sound like a saxophone I wanted to play it, it through a Marshall cab through a whole lot, load of pedals you know and um,
0: so straight away your mind was doing something non conventional with that yeah instrument.
1: yeah because to be honest a lot of that post-punk music as it's become now known, at the time there was no name for any of that shit. It was just freaky weird stuff, you know, that was released independently. And it was that had that independent train of thought, that independent modus operandi, you know, where you would try and do something you wouldn't hear anything anywhere else. And it seemed like every artist that emerged seemed to have their own sound separately. It didn't seem to be, about Xeroxing your influences. It seemed to be how to have that incoming data, but output something of your own that's fresh and original, you know? And for me, it was the fire, the core, like philosophically, politically, uh, socially, you know, that unites all great musics for me. Obviously now looking back, whether it be free jazz in the 60s, rockabilly music in the 50s, um, Hip hop in the the eighties, um, Jamaican music in the seventies, punk music in the late seventies. It's just that invention plus fire, you know, and that need to make music. It's not about music as commodity. It's about music as necessity, you know. And and that's what inspired me, you know. Um, and when I when I was a kid, like in my early teens, I was hanging out with everyone was inspired by music. You know it just seemed to be the only way out for the my friends that I chose, like one of my best mates was a leading rockabilly d j in the in in the South, so I would travel to rockabilly dances with him, even though I was a punk at the time, or I would know mods or it was very tribal, but in a town that small, the tribes hung together because the enemy was these crazy navy guys or army guys that would come to town and try and bash you because of the way you looked, you know so I saw more violence on a regular basis in Weymouth than I ever saw in London, although London's violence, when it does appear, is suddenly much more deadly, you know, and I just think that it was a battleground then, and I I generally, maybe it's because of my family life, I I just see... I see life as as, as as chaos, you know, and it's just how you can find your path to navigate that chaos. I think Buddhists believe that actually. And for me, my, my path is music and it's the only way I've managed to stay sane in in this very screwed up world that we all exist in, you know.
0: Texas was it? Was it a guitar you picked up first, or was there something else? Um,
2: no, actually, it's funny. I didn't actually get a guitar until we had moved back uh, to Washington a couple years later. Um, like, uh, it's funny because like ac like made me want to play guitar, but then it was sort of like uh, encountering when I moved to Seattle. Uh, there was a local band called the Human who are very birthday party influenced and for some reason I bought their record and and uh started going to shows that weren't like you know stadium rock shows like I'd been to before and again and there was that sense of like oh I can do like this is how you do this like you know um and you know I'd started listening to stuff like I think the first band that wasn't like a hard rock, heavy metal band, uh, I heard was, like, X, and then, uh, I also got into, you know, uh, punk rock, and I'm a huge Keith Levine fan, so the early PIL stuff I really love, but, uh, that sort of was like, oh, wait, I can actually do this, like, and then I got a guitar, uh, when I was 16, I think, so... It took a few years before I sort of realized, like I wanted to do it, but then it was that sort of realization of like, oh, I can do this. Um,
0: And was it conventional or again, like Kevin, it was you, you were trying to do something different from the start?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, like, all my, fr- the couple friends I had that played guitar were always, like, learning other people's songs. Like, one of the, my friends was a huge Beatles fan, so he was always like, oh, I just learned how to play whatever, you know, Taxman or whatever. Um, and, like, immediately I, like, a friend of mine taught me a few chords and I just started writing songs. Like, um, there was a local band from Tacoma that I used to see a lot called Girl Trouble and they were kind of I guess kind of 60's garage rockabilly-ish kind of band but um they were much older than I was but um but uh but yeah, and they had this magazine that they put out and sold at shows, like a little Xerox fanzine. And one of the issues had the guitar player was called the Big Kahuna. And it was like the Big Kahuna songwriting method. And so I was like, OK, I guess this is how you write a song. So that's what I started doing. Um, and then like uh, like started my first band, which was horrible. And we played one show. We lied to the club and said we were from LA to get the show. And then, uh, and then that sort of fell apart, and then, uh, and then I moved to Olympia and started another band that was horrible, um, although it was funny, we got described as looking like Cinderella, but sounding like Flipper, because we were kind <laughs> of, like, glam rock, um, but, like, really weird, retarded glam rock, um, <laughs> and then, uh, so then I sort of, like, hunkered down for a couple years and got really into King Crimson, and, and, and <clears throat> I guess King Crimson and a lot of, like, Slayer um, and learning, like, actually, like, putting in a lot of effort to learn, like, music theory and stuff like that. Um, and so then when it came time to start... The third, the third time was the charm, like, when I set out to start Earth, I was like, okay, I was like, I sort of, like, conceptualized the band before I started it, and it had sort of, like, okay, this is what I want to do, and this is, like, it was much more, proceeded much more from a space of, like, this is what I'm going to do kind of thing, and, you know, 25 years later, <laughs> uh i'm still doing it <laughs> was there a king crimson track that stood out from that time um yeah i mean i uh, i think that album that was i mean i think it's uh, the album starless and bible black like it completely like rearranged how i looked at music like it was it's just such a phenomenal record and like you know, before, like, I'd heard about improv but, like, had no idea, of like, you know, you sort of always think of that as in a jazz context, or, like, uh, but, you know, hearing, like, what they did with it really, like, just blew me away, and, uh, I mean, I didn't really start getting into doing improvisation myself till quite a bit later, but, um, Earth was more constructed at the beginning but then uh, it began to be a bigger influence on what I did um, from that. So, I mean when Earth first started like I sat down to play because Rip did and you know it's like all and, like I used to play behind the amp so there would be no visual experience for anyone. It like, was very like like arty kind of in a, weir- in a weird lunkhead Washington redneck way. (laughs)
0: clearly big fans of each other's work how I'd, I'd like to know how you first sort of became aware of you know when did you first start hearing uh, Kevin's music
2: um, I guess technically the very first time um, uh, was King Midas Sound opened for Um. that was the first time I heard you and then uh, and then uh, Simon Fowler The artist who did the artwork for our record and uh, a couple Earth records, uh, sort of like was telling me about Kevin and and played me the the bug stuff basically. So um, that was sort of how I became aware of it.
0: And for you, Kevin, when was uh...
1: for my sins? I I worked as a journalist for a while when I wasn't making any money from music whatsoever, and. I got sent Earth 2 and uh, was sort of horrified and and magnetized to it, you know, because it just like this dirge of claustrophobia and distortion, which instantly was going to attract me (laughs) and then slow and antisocial. Game over, really, you know. Um, so basically, yeah, I heard that. And um, did you do a review? I Earth didn't too? because at the time I was, I was the magazine I was uh, reviewing for uh, was Tower Records in store, and at the uh, my my position there was the electronic music um, reviewer, uh, which and there was another guy doing metal, and. I, it's just I happen to know the guy that sent out freebies for Sub Pop and uh, they sent me that and probably by mistake, maybe. I don't know, but <laughs> I was happy they sent it. But then I, I didn't for some reason, I don't know why to this day, I didn't keep tabs with Earth at all. Um, and then it was probably hearing Hex. I don't know. There's probably two albums between uh, Earth 2 and Hex at least. Two, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And then when I heard Hex, I was really, <laughs> Two albums <in> movie. <laughs> <laughs> then I was really blown away because for me, it, of course it had the same intensity but just this amazing use of narrative in space and it was drenched in atmosphere, felt like it was a soundtrack to an, a lost America, you know, and and just kept tabs since then on what Dylan had done. and. Um basically became a fan, you know, of, of, of where he went. And it was through Simon, the illustrator, having links to, to Dylan that um, I reached out to Dylan to, to do the EP that came out on Ninja Tune, Boa and Cold. Ironically, considering how it ended up sounding, I sent Dylan sort of licks from old reggae tunes, classic reggae tunes, uh, like the cuss-cuss rhythm and the tempo rhythm, which Dylan recorded onto. I mean, they didn't they didn't sound anything like those original reggae songs that they, the melodies were taken from. They were slowed down immeasurably. But then when I heard what Dylan did, I totally rewrote everything and took away all the original reggae parts, not on not as a, a trick, just because I was so inspired by what Dylan had done and his approach. Um, so for me, I just was inspired by, by how, he, how he approached the guitar and just tonally and texturally. You know, I think for me, Dylan's a craftsman, a master craftsman, actually. Um, as an electronic producer, the real goal is to how you can find your own voice through machinery. You know, and, and how will people recognize you have your own voice and not the voice of Mr. Korg or Mr. Rowland? You know, and I think that Dylan's got that, you know, he's got a style and a sound that's instantly recognizable. And, and, and for me, just keeps getting better and better, actually. I, I think he's been brave in his choices. Whenever people have expected a right turn, he's done a left turn. And again, I, I like that, you know, personally.
0: Dylan, what did you think of this guy sending you uh, slow down reggae records? Uh, did you just embrace it straight away, or?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I mean, it, it's funny because, like, even though, like, I grew up as 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 a, a metalhead and I love heavy metal and hard rock, um, the guitarists that I like super admire are sort of the, like, the R and B type craftsmen, guitarists like Steve Cropper, Cornell Dupree, like uh, the kind of people that are like subsuming their ego and just like contributing to the overall piece of music. You know, it's not about like, you know, the hot solo or the, you know, it's about the, like, what can I do to make this you know, work or you know, like what can I contribute to this? Um, I mean, I didn't know. actually funny because I didn't know about the origin uh, origins of the tracks till recently. I mean, my knowledge of that kind of music isn't as deep as Kevin's. um Yeah, I mean, so I mean, I just uh, I love collaborating uh, on on stuff like, especially if it's something that's like. I mean to me that's where like the magic happens is like when to, you know, when I'm, when you're interacting with another musician, um, you're gonna do stuff that you wouldn't have done on your own.
0: Had you both actually met at that point? No. No, so you were you were just sending stuff to him?
2: Yeah. And then when,
0: when did you actually meet? Uh, still before the... EP came out. Or? No,
2: it was after the EP came out. We were. I ran into him on the streets of Krakow, Poland, because we were both playing on Sound Festival, and you were out on a cake run, and I was heading to the hotel.
0: <laughs> and so then, how did it progress then to sort of you know where we are
2: today with this
0: album? Obviously, you kept in touch in that period. Was it? Is is the music on this release? Did it start back then?
2: Um, well, we did two shows, um, we played at Supersonic, um, I guess it was kind of a half and half show because it was with Flo Dan, perhaps so a bit, and, the half. and then I did the first half where we did the Cold and Boa, yeah. and then uh, we played again for Ninja Tunes' 25th anniversary, yeah, is that yeah. the LA thing? Yeah. And he had a bunch of tracks and since we were both going to be there for a while, uh, it was our, our opportunity to like actually work together, together, like be in the studio at the same time. Is
0: that different? Um, can you work equally as well, sending stuff to people and getting it back? And uh, is is it, is it, I guess, must be different being in the same studio?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, I I think it's been a lot better. Because, I mean, obviously we've gotten to know each other better. We've gotten to realize, like, stuff that we have in common musically. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just more, it's nicer to have someone to, like, hang with while you're doing it rather than, oh, there's this guy over here waiting on my <laughs> my thing. I'm waiting for that email. <laughs> that that we <laughs> transfer. <laughs>
0: Is there an instant understanding musically between you or is there differences and they combine to become
1: what you've uh, produced? I'd say we've never talked about this objectively. We're probably fairly reserved characters who are wary of people.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I'm sure Dylan wasn't sure where I was coming from. Really? I don't know. I've never spoken to you about that. but I. Dylan probably never had a clue because it was never a direct conversation where we said how concrete desert would sound and actually what he recorded on in LA was related to the album but actually got again very extremely rewritten in Berlin you know um, I think what was great about being in the studio was getting to know Dylan as a person you know and, and That's what's great about being in the studio with someone. It's an instant rapport or not,
2: Yeah. (laughs) you
1: know? um, I've been in uncomfortable studio situations where I wish hadn't lasted as long as they had. (laughs) But actually, as I've grown to to know Dylan, and we've worked more and done more shows together, I feel that a, a collaborative world is opening up for us, which is really super positive, you know? And it was actually thanks to Ninja setting up that party that, that it gave us the opportunity. Ninja also found the studio, Ninja LA, Jamie uh, found the studio um, with Daddy Kev and um, that's what made it happen. And it was just great to, to, I've worked by mail, which I have nothing against whatsoever. There's sometimes a stigma to that attached. A lot of journalists seem to have a problem with that. I don't really have a problem with files being exchanged if the end product is mind-blowing. You know, I don't care how you get to that end product. But actually, just an instant re- communication is great, you know. And also, when you're getting to know someone, just to, to realise, are we go? do we have similar interests? Are we aiming for the same thing? And the conversations in the studio alerted me to things I really didn't know about Dylan. I didn't know he was... a uh, a fan of hip-hop, or how deep his knowledge of Dub was, or how much he liked Spaceman 3. You know, this is all... Like, if my wife was here right now, she'd be laughing at the nerdism of this conversation, (laughs) you know. But actually, as a nerdy musician, and a, a complete obsessive about sound and production, it was fascinating for me to get to know that Dylan wasn't just about playing a guitar full stop, which I never really thought he was, because his music had shifted so often, you know. So. It's really concrete desert. Just, was just a part of the process of getting to know Dylan and getting to know a city for me. You know, it was very much took shape through our meeting, but also through the fact that it was in a very definite environment that spoke loud to me. You know, and it was fascinating to see how we could sort of manoeuvre in the studio, and then how I would have. I decided would have to how I decided to try and give that some form of narrative for the album as the producer you know it's it's just that was my role so so my role was how how can I form that into something you know and and definitely hearing what Dylan did gave me new impetus and a new direction in, in where the album went
0: so, so you mentioned I think before about LA being you know a part of it so if you know if you done that in a different city, you think you would have had a completely different outcome? And what what was it about L.A. that did it?
1: I think absolutely it would have sounded different in a different place. And as I worked on the the final mixes, I really wanted to feel as if I was in L.A. or the evocation. That might sound a bit wanky to someone, but actually it's just, did I feel how I remembered the city, The, the heat, the haze, the distance, the space? That's what I wanted to feel when I heard the records, you know, uh, and um, Dylan enjoyed me moaning miserably about the city in the studio um, and Dylan had lived there. So I think it would have been, uh, I've subsequently heard from him that it, it was interesting for him to hear my perspective, but we, we actually feel differently about the city. Dylan likes LA, I don't. <laughs> goes do, I do, I do everything
2: that you pointed out about yeah. I also
1: agree with
2: it's just that
1: I for some reason
2: it's, <laughs> it doesn't affect me as negatively
1: yeah but it is it's definitely definitely intrinsically linked to LA uh, which is ironic that we recorded it at the hub of the whole beat scene in LA now like we're flying low gas lamp killer all those guys record that stuff too but that was nice that was nice too i'm glad that happened
0: were they, were they were you hanging out with the the other guys
1: la guys there at the time no not at all but i like that stuff like i i i saw flylow play his first london show in plastic people and i was instantly blown away and i went to every show i could every time he was in town if i was in town subsequently you know i think he's a gifted player and the fact that he's related to alice coltrane just ascends him even higher to me because alice coltrane is the highest of highs, you know and um gas too i've met him through touring and i i like that beat scene but emotionally it's never touched me as much as dirty disgusting anti-social new york hip-hop <laughs> you know um so yeah but i like it i definitely like it and i've got a lot of time for, for the people involved in that scene yeah
0: I want, to, I want to hear of a few more records that have perhaps influenced you over the years you mentioned Alice Coltrane there yeah. uh, is that a shared interest yeah. and is there some a track an album
2: the whole journey of, to Sachinanda record and then the one he I, I, you probably don't like this one. but I'm not sure because there's guitar on it, but Santana. the Santana one, <laughs> the Illuminations. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we on the Bees Made Honey tour, we used to the, for the pre-show music, we used to play Journey for Satchinanda But yeah, no, I love Alice Coltrane. I like Alice Coltrane better than John, which. I always expect to get hit when I say that.
0: the tracks when you were in the studio and discussing you were saying you know you got to know that it was into hip-hop and stuff like that was there was there can you remember one track where you were like wow you're into that i didn't expect that velvet underground
1: <laughs> spaceman 3 i understand i understand that mm. but the hip-hop thing i'd never heard in his work but i like that even more mm. i don't think because you like something your music should sound like that, you know. I think it's much better to pick up the inspiration.
2: Mm. Yeah, that's one. I mean, that's, uh,
1: that's uh, one. I mean, that's one thing.
2: Like, I, like, uh, there's a bunch of music that I feel has influenced me, but that doesn't. To me, you don't have to sound like it. Like, a, like, a, like so many people believe influence means like oh, trying to ape it or. Or sound exactly like it, and like you can be influenced by music without, you know, copying it. Basically, so.
0: Kevin, you you talk about um, Concrete Desert being a companion piece to London Zoo. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, in a way, just <laughs> just 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 in as much as it's the right. of the city centric, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, London permeated every pore of London Zoo, obviously, and that's why I titled it that, because I I can't remember how many years I'd been living in London at that time. Before I left London, I'd lived here, I think, 25 years. Um, Concrete Desert was... I spent a week in LA, you know, um, which is nothing, you know, but it had a very intense effect on me, which, ultimately, I didn't realise when writing sketches for Dylan, the album would be me focusing on LA. It was only during the post-production and the mixdowns and 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 the, the finishing of the writing that I realised that actually this is the obvious thing it should be about because it's everything about how where we met and and how and I, I feel, like I said I felt very intensely about the city, you know. I think socially, uh, politically, and and just what it epitomizes. So um, for me, Hollywood is the heart of the American dream. So does that mean the American dream is totally based on fantasy? When you see the detritus of America sort of swept under walkways that are bulging with homeless people and see just the sheer affluence in L.A. that is totally separate to that. and. Everything I've known about Europe, like driving... I don't drive, I've never driven a car.
3: <laughs>
1: um, so I like to walk, I like to socialise with people, I like to meet people. That doesn't exist. You're a freak in LA if you walk, and you walk for miles, <laughs> you know? And just how weird Hollywood is, generally, and, and, and just the whole the whole city is just so surreal. It could be, a th- I, you know, sometimes, as I said earlier about certain musics um, in interviews we've done recently, music that I ended up loving I, when I on first hearing I probably didn't like or because I, I felt disorientated by. And some psychologists may say that I've got this actual attraction to LA because <laughs> I really didn't like it so much. But no, I don't. I have zero attraction. And you're gonna live the, this, there. This, yeah. this, no, exactly. Well, you know, the irony is Code Nine said to me before that trip, LA's really changed. <laughs> Because I was being a bit cynical about the city prior to going. And he was like, it's changed, man. It's really nice. And everyone's moved there. Uh, and, and I remember joking to my wife saying, hey, maybe we'll move to LA <laughs> before that trip. You know, nailing coffin, nailing coffin afterwards. Guaranteed I'm never even living in LA. Right, next interview, I'll we'll see you on the beach. In, yeah. Uh... <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. So
0: you got some shows coming up and um, tell us what we can expect from a live show.
2: The CTM show that we did, like that was the first, even though we had played together a couple times before, this, the, that show was the first one that felt like it had really gelled, I guess you could say, because like, obviously we'd had have, have the basis of the record and then we'd had some time to, to hang out at his studio and, and, and work on it. and. Um, uh yeah so i mean i guess it's just sort of i mean i always view the live situation as completely different from record and it's a chance to uh sort of improvise and riff off the record and create something that's maybe based on a record but makes it more it's usually i think more intense and more exciting i guess to me anyway, but
0: Kevin, is your from
2: what you've done previously live, is it a,
0: a completely different setup or show from your side of things?
1: No, actually it's not. Um, it's really just a, um, a continuation of how I worked with Techno Animal Live and how I worked with Kim Mida Sound Live actually, whereby I more or less bring a studio into the live environment and dub it out. You know, and I'm able to improvise or build layer upon layer of of psychedelia on top and around what Dylan does, you know, and I can play off him with what I do, and it gives me freedom of movement. And like Dylan, I, I feel personally so often, so many big shows are so sanitized now, whereby it's become expected that you should retread your album almost note-perfectly, well not almost, note-perfectly, uh, and that bores me to tears. You know, it's like if I want to hear an album, i listen to the album at home, but in a live environment I want it to feel different or special. So often when you see a band that's so well-drilled, you end up feeling it's, it's like robotic, soulless, and what do you go home and talk about? The same, peop- the same show will be the same to the next audience at the next town, the next night, you know? I can't stand that idea. You know, I, I, this, we really have room to move. And sonically, I feel that a live show, if it's truly live, should overwhelm you. It should be something you go and talk about. The best shows I've been to, I've evangelized about for weeks and years afterwards, you know, and I'd hope that what we're doing live has that sort of impact when people come. Some people may be bored by the album because they see it as, as fairly easy listening compared to stuff we've been known for in the past. Could come to the show, I think, and, and have their their brain cells are re-massaged by, by the decibels and dissonance. So it's, it's got what the album's got, but it's got a lot more, I feel, too. you know. That's not a diss of the album. I'm very proud of the record we've done together. Um, but I just think live is live. It's not a, a, a 100% reflection of, of a record. I find that pointless.
0: Brilliant. Well, I, thanks very much. Um... Are you gonna be hiding behind the amp? That's all I wanna know. No, no, I'm, I,
2: I'm, 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 a, I'm a show off now. So I'll be Front and center. Well, thanks very much uh, both of you
0: for coming out. Thank and you. Good luck with all the live shows and the rest of it and um, future projects. the bug and earth in conversation and now we turn our attention to some of the new releases coming out on the ninja tune family of labels starting with a track from james heather called bad role model which is coming out on counter records Ad role Model by James Heather which is coming out on his Modulations EP 1. Up next it's Discwoman co-founder and um Fung with a track called Where Is She which is coming out on Technicolor. with a track from her album, Symbolic Use of Light. Now it's new signing, Bicep, with a track called Aura, which is from their debut LP, coming out on Ninja Tune. with aura from their forthcoming self-titled album next it's another new signing jordan rake with sorceress which is also coming out on ninja tune
4: darkness growing over me silently it's creeping closer devs try to take hold of me violently they seem to hold her Snake, i try some wizardry Patiently, you seem to bolster Hate towards my imagery Vakently, you are the sorceress You are the sorceress You are the sorceress You are the sorceress Bye.
0: That was Sorceress by Jordan Raque and we end with a new track from Lapalux called Forever featuring Tau V. And that's coming out on Brainfeeder. Appelux with Forever, taken from his forthcoming album, Ruinism. That's it from the Ninja Tune podcast. We'll be back with another edition soon.